Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to A Time for Heroes, episode one of the Rugby League Digest new series on the Super League War. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Hello, mate. I'm uh, very, very excited. We finally made it. We finally did. So uh, this is the first of a three-part look at season 1994. Uh, and just to set it up, I don't suppose we'll we'll spend too much time going into why we name the episodes as we do as we go forward. But, but this episode, A Time for Heroes, I've chosen specifically because... The cliche about there being no heroes in this story, that could have been invented for the Super League War. Very few parties involved emerged without reputations tarnished or integrity questioned. And as we as we all know, as we all remember, and as we'll hear much more about, uh, it quickly became a very ugly time in rugby league. But just before that, 1994 was viewed by us as kids and, and many other people in the game as some kind of a high watermark. Was it... The actual halcyon days of the game? Well, this this is what I, I want to spend a bit of time interrogating because it's always been, you know, kind of just assumed in my mind, 1994, that, that was that was the era, that was the, the high peak of rugby league in my lifetime. And I thought maybe that was just the, the recollections of, of a child, you know, and was it really that good? And what struck me, I, I saw a 2003 issue of Big League uh, which was then being edited by Neil Cadigan. And in his uh, editor's column, he spoke about 1994 with basically the exact same uh, kind of sentiment. So th- there's obviously more to it than just we were kids, rugby league was exciting. In, in my mind, uh, you read every year in rugby league about some, some sort of halcyon days being referenced, but in my mind it, it was the greatest year. I was 14. My team was a superstar bunch of thoroughbreds. A lot of personal meaning to the to the season for me, so it just ticks every box for me on on, on every level. But um, always danger in rugby league of rose coloured glasses. Yeah, as and, always, <laughs> and, and that's the other main reason I wanted to start here because uh, there is a lot to interrogate. In in many ways, the successes of nineteen ninety four was somewhat of a house of cards. We're going to be looking at all of that as future episodes go on. But as we're going to be spending the next year or so getting very grubby. There's not a lot of hope, not a lot of optimism or positivity. I wanted to, to start this on a positive note. Well, as, as positive as you and I can get. <laughs> <laughs> but it's necessary because this is what set the tone for the whole thing. So it's absolutely necessary to start here and it's also enjoyable to do so. Yeah, so uh, so that that's that's why we're here today, just to start this series off on a high note. And and so as as we've done with our previous season recap, we're going to be taking a, a general look at rugby league at the time before going into the, the highs and lows of, of the season uh, filtered through the premiers and losing grand finalists, Canberra and Canterbury. Do you want to just do a bit of an initial thought here on the 
the state of the game, they were just on top of the head thought. We're two years after the sort of change of the game. 92 is the end of the five meter rule sort of scrappy vibe game. Then 93 it sort of become a bit more structured. But 94, we're looking at the modern game. So 90, 93 is actually when the, the 10 meter rule officially changed. And it didn't really gel that quickly so halfway that, through the year that was halfway through the year which which we've got some more talk about that later <laughs> in the show so we'll save that but insanity so yeah it, it did take a, a while for for all those changes to come into effect plus you had the the coming excitement of the new clubs and we're definitely going to interrogate whether going to 20 teams was a good idea spoiler it wasn't um, <laughs> but you had canberra and brisbane I think that and the new clubs and everything that was happening made it a, a more exciting time by default. True. But I just wanted to touch on that because you watch an old grand final, say, Balmain Canterbury, it's like watching a different game. It's not, yeah. it's not even the same game. In 94, when we had to rewatch that, um, which wasn't a big, big ask for me, I've watched it every year anyway. Uh, it just felt like the modern game. Except for the, the play the ball, I found was oh, well, so slow. Well, that was like an MMA fight, yeah. but. <laughs> It was like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that there's definitely a marked difference between watching football from that season and watching like, you know, mid-late 80s football. Yeah, for sure. So I, I thought to, to get started, a, a good way of, of getting a feel for the overall uh, pulse of the game at the time was, was to look at the Rugby League Week uh, players Q&A. Uh, which is always a source of uh, some some very very funny stuff. What I love about those is the the inane taste in TV shows and music. That, that that's uh that's <laughs> on, on my on my run sheet here. I, I just want to set up the Q and A for this year because they actually went with a themed Q and A kangaroo contenders. And if if you look at the players who they got, they they did pretty well of of basically picking that kangaroo squad. Starting the year with Rod Mabon, maybe a, a misfire, <laughs> but but from there they they did pretty well. well he was pretty hot. He, he, he was for a time. That yeah. time, yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be hard to get all the contenders though. You just ring Bozo and go, <laughs> "Who are you picking?" <laughs> uh, but let, let's start with with some of some of those tastes in in music and TV. By far and away the most popular show among football players of 1994, Home Improvement. <laughs> Of course. I, I think about 50% of players uh, voted for Tim the Tallman. Most of the others went for Heather Locklear et al. on, on Melrose Place. Oh, fair Rod Wishart saying he had to speed home from training to make sure he didn't miss it. <laughs> We're talking about like, waiting for Burt's Backyard for the football. That era of television. Yeah. Like, I was going to catch an episode of Empty Nest before I go out. You know, like, It was just awful. Well, one player's choice of TV show stuck in my mind as, as really laying the blueprint for rugby league broadcasting as it is in 2019 and that was uh matthew johns's favorite show hail and pace <laughs> oh, mate. i mean i'm surprised he doesn't come out with a rubber chicken on his show <laughs> oh, that's that's ultimate uh music was was similarly uh very stock that, that you were seeing a, a start of a new era with uh wendell sailor and brad fittler both picking what a Man by Salt and Pepper is their favourite song. <laughs> uh, beyond that, it was a lot of chisel. But I mean, would you say over the years the ultimate rugby league band trope would be Hunters and Collectors? I've always thought of them more as an AFL yeah, band. Yeah, maybe you're right because they've got the Holy Grail and the, the yeah, coverage, no, no, you know? no, 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 you're right. Like uh, I'm just trying to think of like the one you see all the time. I don't know if it's representative of rugby league as a whole, but I thought it was so apt that Paul Mary McGregor's choice of music was any John Cougar song. <laughs> 
you forget how I mean when I playing in the nineties, they were really eighties guys. Mm. It's like you don't really think of them that way. Yeah, uh, one, one TV show I missed. Uh, Billy Moore uh, chose uh, Sale of the Centuries, Battle of the Coast, <laughs> which, which he actually won that year. So um, <laughs> I love Billy Moore. It's funny how how much those kinds of things matters matter to you when you're a kid, and and even now I, I'd still you know want the rugby league guys to win. But I, I was so proud that he had an intellect, yeah, because we had the reputation of being dummies. Yeah, beat Phil Kearns in the final, so good. Yeah. Uh, with the, with the uh, the 80s music text, I still remember Sterlo on the Footy Show, like in the early days of the Footy Show, when they were talking about rap, and he goes, "Rap, that's." That's got, that's got a silent C at the front, isn't it? <laughs> like he was like, like, like despised rap music. Um, John, si- I like John Simon's uh, answer to to favorite song. It was there are a couple of songs I like, but I don't have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I like a couple of songs. Real music buff. <laughs> One thing I noted with this Q and A, you're really seeing the end of the the you know part time player and the start of professionalism so you had it was probably i don't know maybe 30 percent of the players interviewed that year either had as their job professional footballer or didn't list a job and then you had a lot of marketing officers yeah i mean crazy to think that they were still working (laughs) part-time isn't it uh but but i I wanted to ask you about that so we had a, a lot of variances of marketing officer promotions officer development officer I first came across the term marketing officer uh, in 1988 on the pink footy carts. Yeah, that was a big, big job. Was was marketing officer, uh, which, as we know, isn't a job. It's <laughs> just money from the club to put on a polo shirt and turn up at a few events. But well, well so, some of them I, I think would have taken. Um, so, for instance, Billy Moore's job was um, North's junior representative coordinator. <laughs> I, I would, I think he would have thrown himself wholeheartedly Absolutely. into that. Um, Brad Fittler as promotions officer, I wouldn't have think would have extended more to a, a few appearances at Panthers. Pro- probably more than he was asked to do, really. I think if you've got flow breathing down your neck at North Sydney, I think you take your juniors' responsibilities yeah. quite seriously. But uh, I remember when I was in primary school in Newcastle and Toronto, they uh, had Tony Butterfield and Robbie O'Davis came. It must have been 1990. This Batlow Apples was a sponsor. And they had a Trays and trays of battle apples, no handing them out. It was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so every time I see battle apples, it reminds me of it. Mm. So that, that must have been a marketing officer type role. Yeah, yeah. And Butts went on to do a business degree with me at Newcastle. Oh, United. really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The great man. Yeah. Well, as we'll hear in the Super League, uh, Super, uh, once we get into the Super League proper, uh, cut his teeth by representing the Johns brothers uh, <laughs> in their negotiations. <laughs> they've, they've stepped up to John Fordham now. <laughs> John Singleton as well. A couple of other things that stood out to me was, was a look at the sporting landscape as a whole. A, a lot of, you know, when people were asked who they're, if it, they could be any other sportsman, who would they be? Uh, a, lo- a lot of Michael Jordan. Jason Stevens. I, I thought this was fascinating. Sydney Kings basketballer Leon Trimmingham. <laughs> Oh, he was a massive star back then. He was dunking on everybody. That's uh, hilarious. And and similarly, when it came to most rec- respected Australian, there was a lot of Fred Hollows uh, and and a few few sportsmen like Greg Norman. Uh, Mark Carroll picked Mike Whitney, <laughs> saying he's he's a real likable bloke. <laughs> well, I suppose you need you need to be something that you're not. <laughs> 
Uh, stay, staying on Mark Carroll, uh, one, one of the good G-ups in, in the, the, the Q&A that year was uh, his most embarrassing moment was on the Kangaroo Tour when Paul Sirenen was pretending to play the piano. It was a pianola and I thought he was really playing. <laughs> That's a good G-up. <laughs> He's like, how good's this? <laughs> but on Paul Sirenen, I, I wanted to... This really stood out to me. Uh, so he was asked, if you could turn back the clock, what's the one thing you you would change? And he said... In the 1989 Grand Final, I'd get Bruce Maguire to play the ball instead of him trying to tap it forward. Canberra got a penalty, which cost us the title. How quick are the the big five of that team to throw other people under the bus? For I know, that? I know. Anyone but themselves. <laughs> it's like they had 30 chances to win that game. Yeah. And um, Bruce Maguire's got to take the, <laughs> take the blame? Fair income. I, th- I thought that was that was a bit uh, bit weak by Ciro. Yeah, but also to like publicly like <laughs> sh- personally shame him. No good. Uh, so so yeah. That, un- unless you have any other thoughts on the Q and A, we'll move on. But uh, I used to love the Q and A. Yeah, I, I really loved it. And um, I didn't realize that you know, home improvement was garbage, and <laughs> I didn't realize Tim, Tim Allen was a uh, police informant and <laughs> drug trafficker. And uh, but. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed reading those, and I do remember those contenders ones. That was that was the, that was the halcyon days of league week. Yeah. Uh, so now, next segment, we're going to stay in the nostalgia vibe just for a bit longer, and and well, it's about a year, really, <laughs> and and have a look at footy cards of the era. Uh, I, I thought '94 was one of the best years for footy cards. Well, there'll be some debate there. Check out our Twitter and Facebook. So, so, so the pictures we're going to put up to go with this episode? I, I had the full set for this year. It was probably the only year that I was that invested in collecting that I got the album and the full set. I you went the album? You didn't go to the rubber band? <laughs> um, oh, I really wish I had those cards. I, st- I still got all of mine. Yeah. The only one I've really got full is the pink one, 88. Mm. For some reason I missed them, a yeah. few and. What I really liked about footy cards was the inevitable misprints. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Tunks doesn't play for Cronulla. <laughs> What's going on? But those those Scallons ones with, with the bubblegum in the late 80s, I feel like Michael Speechley was in every packet <laughs> I ever got. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so so there, there was an article in uh, the Rugby League that week promoting the footy cards that said 78% of Australian kids at the time were collecting cards of some kind. So, were you invested? Oh, heavily, in... yeah. Loved it. Loved it so much. I was just getting to do it the age when this was the last time I was going to do it. Yeah. I think I got something in 95, but it, the, the magic had worn off. In 95, I got my first key card and blew my entire life savings <laughs> on basketball cards in, in the space of a week. You and your Beckett, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was kind of the end of it. So... Uh, but these ones were particularly special uh, due to the legend. Yeah. So th- there, were, there were a number of special sets within the, the dynamic marketing set that year. Uh, so you had your, your Tri Machine ones with the Purple Lightning that I liked, your 10-year players, some rookie cards. It was a great, they were great initiatives. And, and yeah, the Legends card, they were so formative for me. Like I remember seeing names like Dave Brown, Vic Hay, etc. that I had never heard of. Yeah. And it was like another world. Well, that's, that sort of shaped your... Interest in it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's, it's not overstating it to, to say that those cards had a massive effect on the fact that we're sitting here today. That's what they need to think about now, is like, how are they affecting 12-year-olds now? Mm. Are they looking after the history? Yeah. Which I think they are, but they could always do more. Mm. The, the gold cards they had, which were really cool. Um, a mate of mine got the, um, is this, I don't know if this is the year, but he got the signed Mark Coyne one, the, yeah. the, the, the rare one. Yeah. The, is it personally signed? Or was it just like, there's like a thousand of them or something? There was, yeah, it was a limited edition, but 
I don't know if they were personally signed. There wasn't many of them, and he got yeah. one. And I kept saying, mate, that's going to be worth a fortune. You know, you, uh, um, I reckon you should sell that. And he, he refused to discuss any sort of <laughs> any sort of selling of the Mark Coin card. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I, I wanted to bring this up. Great card, great look. You know, it hooks me. I, I bought those cards until I got all five. So the five players chosen, Ricky Stewart, Steve Walters, Kerrod Walters, Mark Coyne and Brad Mackay. Like, that's your five? Yeah, yeah. You know, like... Uh, uh, without being disrespectful to Mark Coyne, he's been in some great moments, but he wasn't really in the top echelon. No, but, th- but that's that's a kind of good uh, good segue to what I wanted to... Because I, I wanted to touch on this in, in terms of Mark Coyne, because obviously I'm a Dragons fan, so I, I loved Mark Coyne, and, and even though... Even as a 13-year-old, I was questioning whether Mark Coyne and Brad Mackay really the, the two gold cards I'd, I'd want. Um, <laughs> Brad McCoy was a great player, but he was a backup to the greatest player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. He was a great player. So was Coiny in his, his own way. Um, would would Coiny, as you uh, quaintly described him, would he be a Blues origin centre in the era? I, I think 94, like, he, he would have vied with Mary, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't think it was... I think Mary's... Double the player. I, I think he is too, but I think where they were in the game at that point, I think it would have been a discussion. Oh, I'd rather have Gary Coyne in the sense. <laughs> uh, so, 94 was, of course, that famous uh, origin win for Queensland in the last minute. New South Wales did go on to win the series, with it, which everyone forgets. But I was always, even though I was you know diehard New South Wales fan, I was always so proud of Mark Coyne for scoring that try. <laughs> and he had so much work to do to get over the line. Well, let's talk about that, that try where everyone knows the try. Oh, my God, it's a miracle. What, what does Fatty say? <laughs> everyone knows the try, but the worst part for me was my hero, Ricky Stewart, really didn't put in it on the line to stop mm. it. He, if he put his body on the line, he could have stopped it, I yeah. think. Jarred the ball or something like that. Mm. And he kind of just hung back and let it happen, and no one ever brings that up. Yeah. It, it, that's got to be... Would would you say like top three all time origin moment? Definitely, I, I still think top one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's probably most repeated. Well, it's, it's better than the Lockyer last minute one because it had like a hundred hands in it, mm. and um, and each part of that it could have broken down. Yeah, like it's it's sad to watch for a Blues fan, but it's just magic. But as I said, we did go on to win the series. Game two was a, a triumph for the league. Uh, the first game at the MCG, getting eighty seven thousand people there. Would you say this was sort of the peak of the national origin, like yeah. like the the early when it went national? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Th- that was like probably the start or near the start of where like even people who didn't watch any other rugby league for the year knew about Origin and would tune in for novelty if nothing else. It was only fourteen years old then, mm. so it wasn't it was still yeah quite early. But I still I, I can remember the you know, late eighties being right into it. Buzz in the street sort of thing in, in Newcastle. But not only anyone in Hawthorne was uh, beating down the doors yeah. to watch it. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, John Quayle has or had at the time a, a photo of the crowd at the MCG framed on his wall. So it was this crowning achievement of rugby league at the time. Um, obviously left with a bit of a bitter aftertaste with everything that came you know, in the next year. Also, um, it was one of the most awful-looking TV games because of the, the giant ground <laughs> with these ants on the side trying to watch it. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing is that with, with that Origin series, Wally Lewis, the, the coach of Queensland that year, was under a lot of pressure 
uh, both because of the on-field performance and and some tension between him and you know some of the other Queensland figures involved. I always thought Fatty came out of nowhere in '95 and basically they picked him because there was literally no one left to pick. But in '94 there was he was considered the next in line. Yeah, I mean because of his goofiness on the footy show, which I loved, but he was considered. He wasn't respected for his football now mm. and um, and heart on the on the as a tactician sort of yeah. thing. But he, he uh, the Blues had Radonikas for God's sakes. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I think it's a fair choice. Mm. Um, last thing before we move on from from this little section is I, I wanted to briefly discuss the brands of footy jerseys in that era. Where you had two really peerless and classic. Yeah, uh, I, I just saw an article saying that St George had. Um, got peerless to make their jerseys and i just felt this pang of like because he didn't want to turn up to school in a peerless jersey <laughs> <laughs> well everything was so higgledy-piggledy back then like they couldn't have one manufacturer one deal yeah it's always like guys doing side deals yeah. like, you know what, I mean? what i don't get dada uniforms didn't supply the panthers uniforms <laughs> like they were peerless jerseys i'm like maybe they just didn't make footy jerseys but it just seems weird that you've got Dada uniforms on your uniform that's made by another company. Well, peerless are like, you know, if you want the, the best, if you want jerseys that are going to hold six kilos of water, you come to us. <laughs> if you want some thick gabardine <laughs> slash denim material for your jerseys, you come to us. Make sure that the uh, sponsors things wear off immediately as well. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was always the thing. A peerless jersey with like a number seven half off. <laughs> <laughs> My Canberra milk jersey would look like garbage after like three wears it's just like the milk was peeling off so i've just picked out a couple of stories for that year that uh that that caught my eye um the first of these was this was the year that uh, that alan jones took over as football manager at souths after three middling years at at best at balmain as we discussed on one of our early history corners Despite his record at Balmain, there was, there was a lot of trumpeting this as a, a, a coup for South. You know, they've, they've done really well. You know, Sherlock said, you know, largely via the good offices of Jones, South will now get the $7 million loan they need to transform the aging relic at Redfern into a supermodern leagues club. In the long view, the short-term linking of the influential Jones with South was a masterstroke. <laughs> Bob McCarthy in his book said, even though Allen's three-year stint at Balmain produced indifferent results, South believed Jones would attract sponsors from the top end of town as well as quality players. South have been going for the White Knight for a long time, and finally with Rusty, they got a good one. But it's so funny that there's there's all this talk. Oh, this is a really smart move. You know, they've, <laughs> they've brought in Alan Jones. He's going to get the sponsors. He'll he'll get the money. And to be fair, he did some of that. He did bring some more money in. Player signings we'll get to maybe questionable, but so it was a good a good idea in that respect. But was the only way to get him to hand over the keys to the football department? Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, I don't think he's the sort of guy who likes to say, I'll, I'll, I'll happily power share. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it, it it reminded me of all that when Cronulla secured their real estate deal a couple of years ago <laughs> and there was all this talk about, oh, Cronulla, they've secured their future. They've, you know, this, this is great. They're really, you know. <laughs> and it's like, if you can't do that with your primary, like, <laughs> business then is it is it I, I think you had the analogy of it, it's like you know shelly's soft drinks you know like becoming real estate moguls and <laughs> yeah it's crazy but like, what i get about this trumpeting of this signing was like yes he had the 87 world cup stuff and he had the radio and everything like that, so he had a good name but the, the balmain results were diabolical yeah like he had a decent chance there yeah i mean it 
it show, and we do have an episode on Souths coming up later in the season, but it does show you the dire position that they were in, that this was basically their only way of survival. Was that, to... that, they were lean times back then. Mm. Like, uh, you know, post-89, it was yeah. like, no good. Mm. So let's talk about some of the quirks of Alan Jones, one of which was the, the disciplinary policy he brought in, which uh, operated on a, a demerit point system. <laughs> so if you accumulated 10 points, you get a $1,000 a $1, fine. And after 15 points, you had your contract reviewed uh, and different offences had different points uh, lost, etc., which, which seemed like a good idea. Neil Cadigan did the maths on it and uh, found that, and this is a quote, a player would have to be sent off twice, miss training twice, be late three times, and miss two official functions before he'd have his contract reviewed. <laughs> well, that, that might have been possible in rugby league. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the, the Jones in a circle stuff that we talked about when he was at Balmain. And one of the first things he did was to get his old uh, Balmain prodigy, Jason Sinclair, into the team. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about you know whether he was you know too close to him or giving him preferential treatment. Uh, Jones scoffed at that and said, Jason is just one of a number of players I brought with me from Balmain. He doesn't get s special treatment. As soon as he's healthy, he'll be straight back in first grade. So no no preferential street treatment, <laughs> but laying it out right there. We talked about the, the tragic end of Jason oh, yeah. Sinclair in our history corner, but uh, we also talked about the fact that Alan Jones really looked after him mm. after his career. Yeah. And bought him a house, this sort of stuff. So... Uh, there was obviously a close relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. And th this isn't really an attack on Alan Jones. I mean, I, I could do some of that off air, but he's he's a very litigious man. But, <laughs> but yeah, obviously, he's done a lot of good for, you know, quite a few people in rugby league. So You're right, though. This, this inexplicable halo effect for him. Mm. I think part of it was his Churchillian kind of uh, presence in the dressing room. So Bob McCarthy, who we're about to hear, you know, didn't, it wasn't such a smooth relationship in the end, but uh, he said, it's not only what he says, but how he says it. And they respond, mate, I respond to it so much that sometimes I feel like getting out there. And <laughs> I love Paul McCarthy. <laughs> and so when when Jones joined the team in late 93, he was given a million dollars to bring in some of those big name players that he was surely going to bring to the club. That That's one of the reasons you get him. So they said was he'd attract the big name players. South 94 recruits, Jason Bell, Jamie Corcoran, John Elias, Brett Goldspink, Anthony Cabery, Mark McGore, Tony Mestrov, Gene Namu, who played one game for them. So I don't know about that one. I don't remember him playing for I remember South. him being a prodigy, though. Yeah, yeah. He did well at Auckland for a while, but... For a very short while. Yeah. David Penner, Paul Quinn, Dean Skifalitti, Jason Sinclair, and Scott Tronk. So not not, not really a premiership <laughs> list of recruits. <laughs> And, and that was going with a with a core of young players that were in the could be anything stage of their careers before they turned into could have beens. So Craig Fields was you know dominating at times that year. I don't think you can blame him for Craig Field. No, I'm not blaming. No, him no, for any no, of no, no. I'm just saying like like as a centerpiece. Like yeah, he, yeah. He was the man. Yeah, absolutely. Daryl Trindle was was showing signs that he could have gone on with it, and he had a long career. Great know. player, tricky. Yeah, Duncan McRae, who started well, then went to to the Raras. I remember when he went to to Union, and like that wasn't really done back then. It was people coming the other yeah. way, and I remember thinking, "What's he thinking?" <laughs> and I remember thinking, "What are they thinking?" <laughs> so I think he did quite well. He did it? all right there, yeah. yeah. But I mean, Duncan McRae, yeah. it was it was like a bit of a what's going on here? He must have been about the first one, right? Yeah, it was early. Yeah, and I, it was. I wasn't that worried about it. it was no, but then I was thinking, "Well, that's peculiar." Mm. 
that that core of of young juniors they had coming through. This was just after they lost the likes of Terry Hill, Jim Sedaris, uh, Jim Dimmick, and the bleating from South's management and fans about losing their juniors. <laughs> Like they they act as if they've never bought a player and no other club has ever developed players. It's yeah, like yeah. if if you don't have the means to keep your juniors, well. But also, they seem to think that this club South Juniors, this despicable pokey band, right, is somehow some sort of monument to their like young players in the area. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you're stealing from their families, like animals. And so it, the the Jones era did start well with with that Challenge Cup win over Brisbane. Which was was written about as if it was this sporting miracle, and you know, like one of the great days in South Sydney. Which, looking back twenty five years later, you're like, mate, it's a preseason con. You know? <laughs> but it, all right, it, it was still a thing at that point. I was right into the preseason. Yeah, I, I still I would love it now. Yeah, well, this is one of my talking points. But just to set up the comp, it was the the final was played at Albury, and so games were taken all all over the bush. Uh, I think they did it the next year, and same thing playing. Can I ask you a question? Was yeah. the game in the bush dying back then? <laughs> always. always. <laughs> you know, I know that year of the year after they they took a game to Cobar, so they were they were going like all over the place, which is you know that, that obviously built a lot of buzz and it worked well. Are um, you aware that um, Nick Kosef comes from Cobar? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so this was in the dying days of the preseason cup, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is: We've been long proponents of some kind of cup system in place, you know, over the origin period. But when you think about the history of rugby league in Australia, you have these cups that, going back to the 20s, there was the City Cup. You have these cup competitions that work for a while and then they don't. You know, the Wills Cup, the Craven Cup, the Amco Cup, Panasonic Cup. You know why? Because in rugby league in Australia, you've got two types of football. Mickey Mouse and Fair (laughs) And when people decide that the cup's not Fair yeah, it becomes Mickey Mouse it goes. And as we spoke about a couple of months back about rugby league's inability to achieve cultural change, will a cup competition always have the stain of Mickey Mouse football? Is there any way we can actually have a cup competition that works? I don't think so because the premiership's so important, origin's so important, that they're not going to risk their players. Mm. As, soon as, you, as soon as you're holding back the best players, it becomes Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that that is a big problem. Like ultimately, I I really want it to work, and I think that's the best way of restructuring the season so Origin doesn't kill it for twelve weeks. I don't think it'll ever come back pre-season. I think they're happy with you know twenty interchanges, yeah. and just r- not exerting the body too much for a long season. That type yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's a season with sixteen games. Might mm. be might be worthwhile. But... Yeah, but it's funny. I get, I get South fans like giving me shit. If they beat us at the Charity Shield, I'm like, it's see, a trial, see that disappoints know. me that the Charity Shield's a joke now. But it is, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, it used to be something. Yeah, I mean the World Club Challenge is a joke now. Yeah, which sucks. Mm. I still love the World Club Challenge. But a- anyway, so I, I think that's my main point. Is as much as I love the idea of a, a cup competition, when you look back on previous instalments, it just seems like you're, you're destined to fail. As a child, I loved the Panasonic Cup, mm. but that was, you know, guys training twice a week and yeah. when you've when you got these thoroughbreds on a million dollars and a free boat, mm. um, you can't be... So it, it was a great victory for South regardless and was really going to set the tone for the season. Uh, that all came crashing down one week later when they were smashed by Newcastle in the opening round of the Premiership and the debut of Andrew I was there, Jones. live, on the, on the drunk hill, not the dry hill. And... Uh, 
He was phenomenal. Do you remember any buzz about him before the game? I remember people saying, uh, Matthew Jones' brother's playing. I'm like, oh, Matthew Jones is awesome. Like, his brother might be good too. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and there's this uh, gun player. He's kicking all the goals and he's bumping people off with his hips and stuff and scoring close to the line. It was awesome. Yeah. And I, and he was scoring on my end. So what, I think it was 23 points on debut. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah, 23 yeah. points. I remember thinking like, what a debut. What a way to announce yourself yeah. and then to, to go on with it. I, I well, you know what I feel about um, memorable debuts, Fittler, Jones... This makes like when a, when a near immortal or an immortal has those immortal debuts, mm. awesome. Yeah, it, it did. You know, flatten the champagne at South, and it was it was a reality check that the season wasn't a complete disaster, and they did finish ahead of Newcastle on the ladder eventually. Uh, but just I, I wanted a, a little aside on Newcastle. Uh, one one article that I saw was talking about Newcastle media that year, uh, which was which featured players uh, heavily on on the radio on the TV. They they were all over it. One of my favourite was uh, on New FM, Saturday morning, uh, Waity and the Chief, David Waite and Paul Harrigan <laughs> had a show together. I don't remember that. That's hilarious. <laughs> so you had uh, Mark Glanville calling the news on an arrival radio station. Mark Sargent was a sports reporter on Prime Television. Mark Sargent and Matthew Robwell had an ad for, I think it was McDonald's, might have been Henny Penny, some reason I think it's McDonald's, but it was so cheesy. <laughs> Matthew Robert goes, uh, what are you having, Sarge? He goes, oh, I have everything. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of, because my um, my mum lives uh, on the south coast, so I was I was exposed to a lot of the, the Illawarra media. And Wind TV. Wind TV, yeah. Uh, and a- any radio commercial that didn't feature Rod Wishart and Paul McGregor wasn't, wasn't worth the time, <laughs> you know. But then, going back to that era of television, in my house... We got the Sydney Channel, we had a big antenna, but my nan's house... They got Prime and NRTV and all the Newcastle versions. So sometimes there'd be different things on. It'd be like, oh, um, they got some others do have them on Channel Ten, but they got Porridge on yeah. NRTV. It'd be like awesome. <laughs> so, so, in the case where the football wouldn't be played uh, on the yeah. on, uh, yeah. on the NBN, night. yeah, I, I did the exact same thing. Because, like my my uncle who lived in Clove Valley, but somehow had some satellite hookup or whatever, so we could go and watch the the win. Uh, broadcast of the footy that wasn't on in Sydney. What about that? Excluding people from a major city <laughs> watching their own television. Well, maybe that's the only way we can get people back to that. Games, that, w- that, wouldn't, that wouldn't no, help. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't. That would just kill rugby. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so that was just a little aside. Back to back to South uh, and Bob McCarthy arriving at, as a coach at South, uh, leaving his job as a Lakemba Lakemba car salesman for the opportunity. <laughs> Um, would you like to buy a car from uh, Bob McCarthy? I think I would. Yeah. I think he'd be fair, didn't he? Yeah, I think so too. Mate, I'm going to tell you, we've got a few miles on the clock, but it won't, it won't let you down, you know? <laughs> uh, did you know in the 60s, uh, the Stax car dealership was, was a regular employer of footy players? Uh, so at one dealership, you had Rex Mossop and Ian Walsh, both there competing to be salesman of the month. So. How many times do you reckon they rolled the sleeves up over that? <laughs> Do you reckon there'd be brawls in the This in the is market? more commission, mate. <laughs> so McCarthy arrived at South and was... I'll read this from the 3rd of August, 1993, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald. South Chief Executive Terry Parker emphasised that Jones would have the ultimate say in the running of the team, including selections. It's got to be made perfectly clear to everyone, publicly, that Alan Jones is the boss of that area, Parker said. So, fairly explicit then. You'd, you'd think that McCarthy was coming in knowing that it was Alan Jones' show, and you know he was there to guide the players around. But ultimately, uh, he'd have to defer to Jones. 
And uh, and M- McCarthy agreed with that, saying, you know, he gave he gave me the job on condition that if I didn't get along with Jones, I would have to be the one to walk away. I agree because I didn't think Alan would interfere in the day to day coaching of the team. <laughs> and then in that same Sydney Morning Herald article, Bob McCarthy was asked how how he thought that dynamic would work, and you know, knowing that. Jones has say over selections and everything, and that's the deal, you know. And he said, I haven't seen Alan as yet. We'll get together in the next couple of days, but we'll most probably bounce ideas off each other, something like Mark Murray and Jack Gibson at Ace. I don't know how he handles the football part of it, but I'm pretty sure he'd play off my experience. And, and asked whether how selections and tactics would go, McCarthy said, oh, that'd be mine. I'm pretty sure common sense would say that he'd leave it to me. But if he offered something, I'd quite listen to him to a certain extent. <laughs> But this is funny because now this is uh, de rigueur for rugby league having a coaching director or general manager now. Mm. Back then it was kind of out of the ordinary. But still, even now, when your director of football was rocking up to training, handing the coach the the team list, I I don't think that would even go down now. No, but also, um, there's always infighting now. Yeah. Rugby league has always been a one-cook kitchen. Yeah. But they always want to have multiple cooks. Yeah. So it quickly fell apart at South, um, not helped by the fact that Ken Shine, who was brought in as an assistant, was another one of Jones's boys and basically was given the, the running of the team on Jones's orders and, and McCarthy was, you know, shunted to being little more than a figurehead. On Ken Shine, he had a, he had a good run there, right? For, you know, sort of meteoric rise, but I never heard him described as anything but Kenny Shine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of disrespectful when they call, like, a, for the first grade coach. Like, yeah. I, I heard Gus refer to Tim Machines in the grand final of 94. Timmy Sheens. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. But I, I guess, you know, Gus had, you know, Penrith connection. Yeah, yeah. And... But I, know, I always felt that was kind of disrespectful. Right? Yeah. yeah. Kenny Shine is doing a good job itself. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, it very quickly fell apart. Like, when, when Alan Jones brought Jason Sinclair in, um, early in the year as a signing, the first Bob McCarthy heard of it was during an interview when he was asked about the signing. I just get the impression with him, it's a bit of Trump in there. It's like, you know, why would I tell anyone what I'm doing? It's obviously the right thing yeah, sort of thing. It's yeah. like, mm. just no tact at all. Yeah. And then Bob McCarthy's not a guy to be treated tactlessly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when when stories were coming out that the, the whole thing was unraveling and there was this, you know, inner turmoil going on, you know, Bob McCarthy was asked about it and, and he said, what's the big deal? We have a hunch where these rumours may have started, but no idea why this bloke would have a vendetta against me, South or Jonesy. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the audacity of, of rugby league guys to deny so vehemently that they can't just say like, no, that that's not I- incorrect. They're like, I don't know who's starting this. But... <laughs> Uh, they demonize journalists, right, for reporting what's actually happening <laughs> all the time. And McCarthy eventually left, blaming it on the hip replacement he needed, <laughs> which even at the time was was viewed in hysterical terms. <laughs> I've I've heard of uh, fake injuries for for players leaving, but like coaches. Uh, and yeah, so that that was basically how how the South story ended that year. So as as I said, they finished ninth. Not a complete train wreck, but the promise of better days from Alan Jones didn't really pan out. Well, the, that, that was a cattle problem. You, yeah. you just read the squad out. Yeah, but he was brought in. Yeah, no, I know. Because he'd attract. But I mean, yeah. like, that could never compete with the top no, sides. No, Yeah. On Bob McCarthy, though, what I love about him is he's still active in the game. He's not lost to the game, that's mm. for sure. But, you know, he's always at the Men of League stuff. He's always yeah. at, the, at the centenary test. He's at this. He's doing. And he's, uh, despite being treated quite shabbily in various roles. 
Gold Coast uh, franchise, etc. But uh, he's you know still loves the game and he still gets involved. Yeah, absolutely. And still respected across the board. Yeah. Uh, so we'll move on to the new clubs, which was the, the other big talking point across the year. A lot of a lot of coverage, column space given to you know who was signing who, um, logo designs, jersey designs, all that sort of stuff. We'll start with the crushes, which both the Cowboys and crushes like utter train wreck of squads. Yeah. The, the Crushers was, was very, very weird in that it was QRL-backed. So I, on our Broncos episode, we talked about um, how that being a possibility for the Broncos and us both saying that it wouldn't work. I wasn't aware at the time that the Crushers actually were, you know, backed by the QRL. Well, I, would, I shouldn't be bragging about that. No, and, and exactly. All the, all the um, concerns we discussed is basically how it played out. Very early in the piece, there was talk that, um, you know, money from... The, the QRL for Origin feeding into the crushes and, and vice versa and the potential of conflict of interest. And John Quayle said, yep, we're watching this. We're on top of it. Um, that's not going to happen. He said, quite clearly, we've got to know where the crushes money comes from. QRL money is to develop league in the state, not to be spent on one team. It would be like us, the New South Wales Rugby League, having our own team. I can't see it happening. So why would why was it allowed to happen? Like, and I know you've got like QRL, CRL, BRL, all these RLs to you know have their say. But how is that acceptable? I don't know. Just imagine the people involved in it, like Queensland Rugby League administrators. Think yeah. about that. And then not only the the QRL conflict of interest, but as always, there has to be some kind of sponsorship <laughs> conflict of interest. So let me ask you this: Is sponsorship is sponsorship conflict of interest uh, even worse in Queensland? It's, it seems to be, yeah. Mo- most of the dramas seem to stem from there. Uh, I mean, there hasn't been a, a Queensland Rebel League sponsorship that hasn't had a drama. No. In, in living um, memory. You know, going to, to aforementioned State of Origin coach Wally Lewis that year, who was in danger of losing his job uh, because he'd um, done some unauthorized promo with Powers Bitter, <laughs> despite Forex being the the Queensland sponsor. God. Uh, to which he said, "If it came to the crunch and I was forced to make a decision, I would have stood by Powers. I don't get paid one cent to coach the Queensland side, and Powers have always been terrific to me." What? Yeah, he coached for free. Free, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Well, this is this is the year of administrators who thought that it it was a, a privilege to play for Australia. You shouldn't get paid for it, you know. Um, well, I think it's very admirable, but I mean, Jesus. Well, I, don't, I don't think it's admirable at all. But no, like, like their, their attitude towards it, but it was like but they're selling out the stadium and yeah. selling giant yeah, TV exactly. ratings. Yeah, Christ. But so the Crushers had to drop Pepsi as their major sponsor because Lang Park had an exclusive deal with Coca-Cola. <laughs> I'm so sick of this sort of stuff. And this is the same year where Manly... The, the Pepsi Manly Sea Eagles won the Coca-Cola World Sevens <laughs> and had to be stopped from going on stage holding cans of Pepsi, um, which you have to think, though, the, that Manly team like would have been absolute dickheads about it. Like, can you imagine Terry Hill like, with a can of Pepsi? Like? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it tastes good after some stolen lobsters. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, just on these corporate fights, like, if a corporate fight like that, soft drink company, beer company, said, you know what? We don't care if they do something with uh, the opposition for one little thing because we're not um, childish idiots. Yeah. I go, I'm going to buy that product because that's yeah, yeah. really reasonable. Because you've got to think these kind of conflict of interest must come up in sport like all the time. Well, when they have to, when they have to like cover their Nike headband yeah, and stuff yeah. like that, it's like yeah. just let 
it's obvious what they are, and you bring more attention to it by I know. bringing it up. Yeah, so stupid. Uh, but so it was a, a struggle from the start on field and off for the Crushers. They were playing in the Brisbane comp that year in '94. Went all right. Didn't you know set the world on fire? Um, off field, trying to... That's got to be a bad omen. Yeah. <laughs> not, not setting the world on fire in the Brisbane Cup. Uh, the, the signing situation was a, a real struggle from the start. They got Bob Lindner early in the piece. Uh, but as of July 1994, in addition to Lindner, the, the key signings they were, were uh, celebrating in the media was Craig McDermott and Trevor Handy, who'd signed on to be official ambassadors of the club. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, dangers and and to, to rugby league in the era, Iron Man. That's so fun, and we, we've we've got more Iron Man coming <laughs> content coming on through the year. But it it baffles, and I was there watching Iron Man every Saturday. Morning. I loved it. Yeah. It baffles me that <laughs> Iron Man was a, such a big thing. I mean, like they were household names. I yeah. mean, I was a guy leech man. I was, I was the Mercer brothers personally. <laughs> But uh, I think the Halcyon days of Iron Man was like ninety two to ninety four. Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so in ninety four, Trevor Handy was a massive get by the. Crushers. He was, he was. Yeah. Alan Jones level going to bring the big names <laughs> in if you got Trevor Handy. But let's talk about the squads, right? If there's no, if there's nothing more true in a hundred and eight years of rugby league, whatever we've done, it's if you have a bad squad in your first year, you are on a hiding to nothing yeah. to keep the club alive. Yeah. And when that aforementioned first signing, Bob Lindner, ends up... So, signs as a player early 94. By the end of the year, he was announced as their non-playing coach. Yeah. Like, how, how bad are you doing if... Well, he was at the end of his career. He played hard his whole life. So, they get a guy broken down, which is what all these clubs do. And he did he did sign with the intention of... you know, Like, he, he you know, he dipped his toes into coaching in England. He clearly wanted to be a coach. So saying that he's a test player killing at 94. Yeah. <laughs> but um so it's it's not like he was um I mean he didn't really work out as a first grade coach, but it's not like it was you know an, an unmitigated disaster or something that came from nowhere. There was always the possibility of him ending up as coach there, but it just kind of speaks of of how bad they were doing when yeah. their their marquee signing ends up their non-playing coach. So you're telling me that Garrick Morgan didn't shoulder <laughs> shoulder the uh, brunt of the workload, or? <laughs> so let's let's have a look at that that squad. So Mario Fennick, their their big name signing. Who was, I think that's a good end of the career signing. Yeah, a, a real uh, effort guy, yeah. a team guy. And so he he wasn't thrilled about having to go up there. He desperately wanted to stay at North. He but... was saying it in the media. <laughs> it's like, mate, take the money, but don't. Whinge about it. Like. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about how hard it was to, to travel around Brisbane because he didn't know the place. He was like, <laughs> I, I, know, I know Sydney really well. <laughs> <laughs> Crushes, you know, administrators getting calls at you know, three in the arm. I'm, oh, I'm lost. <laughs> but so Dale Shearer, another like good end of career signing. Um, Sinjin Ellis. I remember when, when they brought all those new blokes onto the footy show and Fatty was like, your name's St. John. What's the go there? I still think about that at least once a month. <laughs> it's like it still confounds me. <laughs> Who would name their kid that? Why it says St. John. Yeah. Like, it's bizarre. Mm, it is. But I remember uh, I was big into the um, English league there, particularly for the 94 Kangaroo Tour. Um, got right into it. Started buying Open Rugby yeah. magazine. Um, right, that means rugby league. It wasn't, wasn't uh, the devil's work, but... <laughs> Uh, and he was like a big star over there. He was yeah. killing it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great signing. Wrong. Mm. So, Chris McKenna, 
Wayne Collins. Chris McKenna's a good signing. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a good signing. Uh, Trevor Gilmeister, another. So they had like some good guys there. It was just you've got four four blokes trying to prop up a you know yeah pretty pretty poor squad otherwise. But when Garrick Morgan, like you know, hailed as this you know huge signing, he couldn't even make their you know best run on squad when they were putting the you know the, the likely. Team together, you know, half a million dollars mm. that was big money back then. Yeah, this is uh pre Subli. <laughs> and then the classic rugby league thing of players signing letters of intent, but they're not going on to sign the contract. <laughs> so, Darren Smith was originally going to go up and play there, so he could have really helped them. Mm. Peak Darren Smith, uh, and the, the Cowboys. When I look at this Cowboys squad. So the the likely lineup that was in the the rugby league week in December '94: Willie Morganson, John Scarden, Paul Morris, Adrian Vowles, David Bouvang, Noel Solomon, Jason Martin, Martin Bella, Dean Skipperity, Bruce Sinclair, Wayne Singh, George Bartlett, etc. There's there's some names sprinkled in there, but when I read that list, it reminded me of you know video games in the '90s when they couldn't get the rights to the real player names. <laughs> but what what jumps out at me in that squad is Jason Martin because mm. he was supposed to be something. Meanwhile, he's playing bloody uh, his finger picking his acoustic and um, didn't go on with it. So it, it's like that's not really their fault. It, it was a really revealing article he did in that same Rugby League Week special on the Cowboys when he talked about the lo- loss of desire. So he went up to Newcastle, was understudy to Matthew Rodwell and then Andrew Johns. He played about a dozen games in two years there. We had three top flight halfbacks in Newcastle. Yeah. Mm. But he, yeah, so this is what he said. I reckon I got about 10 games in first grade, grade in my two seasons with the club. But to be honest, I didn't mind playing second grade. I liked the coach, I liked the players and I liked helping the younger blo- blokes out. I didn't miss the pressure. I was cruising and I was happy to do that. And And then he went on to say that now he's got the fire in his belly back, but yeah, he, I don't think he did. Fire in the bank account. <laughs> uh, Martin Bella uh, w- was another one who, you know, he was he was washed up by then, but it's a hometown boy coming home and, you know. I always loved Martin Bella. Yeah. I really loved him. <clears throat> he was a character and a, and a villain to, to you know, Gia. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love him even more after reading this comment. This, this is in the school of Wally Lewis reading Phantom comics and going... How does he do it? <laughs> uh, but so Martin Bella was talking about his love of foot rot flats. Uh, so this was also in a rugby league week. When Bella talks about foot rot flats, he marvels at the genius of cartoonist Murray Bell and the way he characterizes the nameless dog. People from the country know that border collies are harder workers on a property than a cattle dog, but they don't have the fearless nature. They tend to hold back a bit, said Bella. Bell portrays this well in his comic strips. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually known as a bit of an intellect, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, against the, the look and the trope mm, of the prop. Yeah. That's what a hilarious comment. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's going deep into the foot rot flats <laughs> writing process. But why was it so hard for these clubs to get players to sign? I just think back then, like, North Queensland felt like another planet mm. for Sydney people. Yeah. Now it's like, oh, God, that'd be great, you know, hometown team. I mean, you could see it was going to be another Newcastle long term, but at this at that era, it was like, oh, they're going to get flogged. You know? Yeah. And then the crushes, I, I think, being in Brisbane, but not at the Broncos. We've discussed this off air. We've discussed this on air. I don't understand why they, they, there has to be a second Brisbane team. Like, 
why can't it be like a second, third? Uh, why can't it be an extra Queensland team? Like Brisbane Broncos are never going to be challenged. I don't. I don't know. And and Hunter Mariners. Like this is some, something you you and the listeners will get used to hearing. But we've got more discussion on this coming up throughout the year. But one thing I think of is if the Crushers launched in '95. That's only seven years after the Broncos. If they were given a chance to cement their place in the landscape, like who's to say they wouldn't have had some Cowboys style growth and have become a real? They could have had it got a following, yeah. but you're always going to be like it's like the Clippers. You know, yeah, the Clippers have got a following in LA, but they're not the Lakers. But so. now you know Kawhi Leonard's going there. You know they're, <laughs> they're, they're getting like um, way, way to date the podcast. But, um, <laughs> uh, but the um, I don't know if we're going to be looking towards a proper professional national comp. We should be looking at having one team per city, not several. Yeah. My view. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of points on on both sides of that argument. But what I come down to is, you had this really strong Brisbane comp for so many years. Surely that fan base could sustain a second club, given the. All right, I'll I'll, I'll um, concede all those points. Ipswich, just do it a bit. Away. Yeah. So Brisbane's got mm. their cachet still. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I do know, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we, we do have some more discussion of this point and the fate of the Cowboys and Crushers to come later in, in the season. So so we'll leave the, the Crushers and the Cowboys talk there. When we talk about the Warriors and the Reds, the media coverage of those two squads uh, in that year w- was dominated by two key signings, one at each club. And the reason they were being talked about was because of one of the most tragic events in rugby league history that took place on the 21st of June, 1992, and, and that was the, the tragic death of Ben Alexander in a car accident. Uh, this, this is a really difficult thing for us to talk about, but it's, it's hard to get away from the impact that this one moment of madness had on not only that club, but in some ways what happened with the rest of rugby league over the next two or three years. We discussed this off off air, you know, in our personal lives and um it's never really been addressed publicly in, in detail, has it? Because it's just too tragic. Mm. You hear that you know, a story here, a story there, a whisper here, a whisper there. But no one's just no one wants to talk about it. Why would you? But yeah, I mean. yeah. <laughs> and, and and for good reason and that's why this is this is such a difficult thing, but something I think we need to do. Uh, just on a personal note, like this was a really formative event for me. You know, like I was eleven. It's not like I didn't know about death, but the idea that like a footy player could die, you know, that was like, yeah. I was uh, twelve as well. It knocked me for six. It's uh, it was just after the the the, the ninety one um, grand final. I still remember where I was when I was told. Yeah. I was on a, a, a school bus, a double-decker 1950s-style school bus, and a, a, a Penrith fan who had been imported with her family named Carrie Ann, old school friend, uh, she looked real down. And I'm like, what, what's wrong with you? Because I hadn't heard about it. She said, Ben Alexander's died. Mm. I'm like, what? Yeah, it blew me away. I still remember all the news reports so clearly. I, I, Wide World of Sports did a tribute where they use, they use Dire Straits Brothers in Arms uh, over footage of especially Ben and Greg together. To this day, I can't hear those guitar notes without thinking about what happened. 
so to press on, Ben Alexander, with all of his Panthers teammates, was at the club uh, after all three grades had had a win. They were getting their you know jerseys presented uh, as 1991 champions. Uh, later in the evening, he, with a couple of other players, decided to, to leave to head to Temptations nightclub, uh, was almost three times over the limit, not wearing a seatbelt, ran a red light, uh, and died almost instantly on the scene. Across town, Brad Fittler was in camp with the Kangaroos. They were partying it up in an eastern suburbs nightclub. In the early hours of the the 22nd of June, Mal Meninga came up to him holding a schooner and and, and told him the news. Brad Fittler basically spent the the rest of the evening like sitting alone in the corner of that nightclub bawling. Panthers, when word got back to to everyone at the club of what had happened, it People were crying openly. The club closed early. Mark Guy was actually at home in the Alexander's household. Of course, he was then dating, now married to Greg and Ben's sister, Megan, was was woken by a you know horrific scream and instantly knew that something tragic had happened. The next day, it proceeded to fall out as, as word got out. Instant shrines being put up at the accident site. Penrith in a, in complete mourning. There were about five thousand people who attended the church and and surrounds for the funeral, and it very quickly caused that club to spiral out of control, which is understandable. It, it started well on the field. They you know backed up for a win the following weekend, which you would have expected them to do. Really, it's any loss of a player is going to be tragic, but the fact that it was a guy on the rise, like. On the bench in the grand final, good judges across the board are saying this guy's going to be something. The brother of the guy that is something, mm. the, like the 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 linchpin and king of Penrith, it's just the club. The club was going to implode no matter what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to see any other outcome other than what happened. But as I said, they they won their first game. Greg Alexander, Mark Guy weren't involved, but they all got up for it. But quite quickly on the field, it all started falling apart. Like in one game shortly after, Steve Carter came off the field and basically announced that he was retiring instantly. Like it was, it was that hard to deal with. Yeah, Brandy was was gone for for most of that year. Others like Brad Fittler, his way of dealing was to just play through it and you know played some great football while dealing with it. It's worth noting how close that that club was. They're out there in Penrith, a lot of local juniors. Um, yeah. well, siege at, mentality. And at that point, Penrith had the vibe of a big country town, yeah, which was always hailed as you know one of the key strengths of the club and the culture. But in the aftermath of this unspeakable tra- tragedy, quickly became something oppressive for some of the players in that environment, like Glenn Lydiard, who was in the car uh, and survived with some you know minor injuries, spoke of that as like, of how hard it was to deal with. His his own personal feelings with that kind of fishbowl environment at, at Penrith, and but on top of all that, you got the close relationships of the you know the siege mentality, the local juniors. There's a lot of brothers in there: Lydiards, yeah, Izards, yeah. Goodwins. Yeah, exactly. It was actually Craig Izard who who was a policeman at the time who actually went to the Alexanders to to oh break the news God. to them, uh, and things fell apart remarkably quickly. Players like Brandy, like MG. Some of the other key players in that team basically spent the next two weeks living uh, living at a bonfire on a property in Penrith, 
just you know drinking and trying to console each other as best they could. The funeral suits that the pallbearers, including Brandy MG, Brad Fittler and Glenn Lydiard, they burnt them with the idea that no one else... They were, they were hired suits, burnt them with the idea that no one else should wear them. See, that, that always struck me as... This is a tragedy, but you know, that's a that's a business. You're, you're, yeah. burning, you're burning their suits, but exactly. uh, and the, the hire going. company actually had to chase the club, and the club had to pay them out to avoid a you know small claims dispute. All right, let's let's uh, we're, we're we're doing this um, respectfully, given the the the, you know, the nature of it, but that's getting towards you know deliverance country sort of stuff. Sitting by the bonfire for two weeks. When I was reading about that, reading about the you know the bonfire reading about the suits my first thought was like like where are the adults here yeah you know like they were kids i understand like how hard it is and especially the alexander family had been a rock for so many of those players like for mg for freddie suddenly they're you know not in a position to offer that support and it just seems there was a real like gap of some maturity that could have led them all through it well i mean i think it's a very very good point we're talking about guys uh in the administration but what what can you do in a situation like that i, I don't think you can really blame i don't think even if there was maturity there you're not going to control these guys there there's no blame here yeah. I, I don't think anyone in the game especially at that time with the culture of the game at the time mm-hmm. could have could possibly have been expected to be equipped with those skills, even now, like something like this, how are you? How do you get through it? Well, I do remember that one of the footy cards, and this knocked me around when I was a kid, was Jeff Selby, St George player, um, died tragically in a car accident as well. And uh, I'm thinking, God, that's 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 awful. But he wasn't like a big name, mm. so it didn't sort of get that much yeah. coverage. But this one it was the family name. It was the, you know, it was the Prince. And what this event did was expose a culture that already had some serious issues and again part of this is game wide you know when when gus came in in 1990 like he was 30 years 32 years old you know obviously he had huge success as a coach and was well regarded and this again is it, this isn't assigning any blame of gus for this but you know mg talks about how the players would come around to gus's place and they'd all you know get on the drink gus included and you know mg spoke of gus as like a big brother uh, we are both on record for not being fond of Gus's uh, megalomania in the current game, but back then he was a beloved figure. Yeah, and that culture was game wide, up, up to and including Ken Utherson. Yeah, <laughs> right? so there's definitely no blame there. No, and certainly with with MG, there were signs that he was on a, on a path already. You know, he'd been suspended early in that season for mar- marijuana use, which. I mean, say you want what you want about the severity of that as an offence, it was still a sign that maybe he wasn't taking his career as as professionally as he, he could have been. Yeah. Then you had an, a clique, the, you know, two rival cliques that were already forming in the club becoming really apparent as the inevitable blame game started with, you know, Gus, chief among the, the target for people who were looking for someone to blame, he dropped Ben Alexander a few weeks before, partly because of some attitude issues and an inability to really take his career seriously. And that led to people blaming Gus, saying if Gus didn't do that, Ben wouldn't have left the club. And all It's the, the most it. absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. And yeah, everyone involved who 
held those views. Like Mark Geyer said that at the time he thought about, you know, driving to Gus's house to to get vengeance, you know, and obviously he's since realised how... Christ almighty. I mean, talking about not thinking straight. Yeah. Horrific stories about Gus trying to make peace with the Alexander family and, you know, that ending poorly. You can't um you can't blame the well, you can blame the family, I suppose, but like it's understandable. Yeah, and that, that that's what that's what Gus has came out and said, you know, mm-hmm. I would never I, I understand it and accept it completely, you know, it, it was a bad situation, but I wasn't gonna stand there and, you know, argue with the Alexander family. Yeah. I, I think he actually he actually handled that uh as well as it possibly could be handled mm. looking back. Yeah. Best way how he was feeling. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. I mean, and to this day, he said that is the you know the the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Certainly in rugby league terms, if not you know in his life as a whole. But that's interesting. The worst thing that's happened to me is his commentary. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was. There were already cracks appearing in that relationship. Like MG and Gus were barely on speaking terms before the accident, which led it to it getting even worse. Gus and the Alexander family had already started to fall fall out over a uh, investment deal where Gus had invested some money into a trophy business that that Greg's stepfather was set up, and as it was starting to fail, Gus was looking at being you know in the hole a substantial amount. So to try to get out of that deal, like cause some acrimony, you, ha- you had going back to nineteen ninety, John Cartwright and Brandy not talking for most of the year falling out of, over some girl and, and, and so these two camps in yeah. the, the club were already emerging something like this happens and it just spirals completely there's a point here about uh you know professional relationships as well do you need to be investing in your players stepfather's trophy business like in a modern game that wouldn't be happening no but again it shows you the the, the nature of of gus and his relationship with his players you know absolutely um that that can't, that can't be forgotten. Like how much of a players' coach he was, yeah, absolutely um, at his peak. Uh, so it, it did lead to him eventually leaving the Panthers halfway through '94. And and he said at the time or shortly after that he he basically wanted to leave the place, you know, from the moment the accident happened. And he, if you look at that core squad, you know, Freddie, Gus, MG, Brandy, they all had to leave to you know grapple with it. And I think that goes back to that you know, country town kind of mentality. It's one of those things when it's inevitable what's going to happen. It's going to implode. You can't just dismantle the squad the day after this tragedy. You've got to sort of let it play out. Mm. And it, just, it had to happen, sort of. Yeah. So that tragic event, I, I said that the kind of seismic event it had on rugby league, just look at it that if you want to look in cold, in terms of changing the fortunes of clubs, Gus leaves, goes to the Roosters, takes Freddie with him a couple of years after, that club instantly transformed. I know you don't like to give Gus too much credit for 2002. You know, you're firm in the belief that it was Ricky Stewart's comp, but I, I mean... Oh, well, the, there's word that it w- that was heavily um, Gus's influence. Yeah, but I mean, regardless of who was coaching that team, the effect Gus had on changing the fortunes of that team. Like yeah. they, they had no identity in, in the early 90s. So. Uh, absolutely, he gets 100% credit for it. And we'll talk about it throughout this uh, 94 year. He was he was a great uh, personality and a great coach and a great um, beloved figure in the game in 94. He was uh, the players, players' choice in the Rugby League Week players poll. He was voted the best coach by some distance. So 
So he had 36%, Tim Sheen's 19 Wayne Bennett, 15 Bozo, 11 Then you had Peter Louie, Chris Anderson bringing up the rear. So that was where he was at in 1994. Two comps at the, by the age of, you know, 34. Yeah, insane. Like, insane. Could coach. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, Gus wasn't the first to leave. That was MG. And it's crazy to think that he was sacked from the Panthers, like, little more than two weeks after the accident. Yeah, which which speaks partly from what I said about the the path he was already on. The, yeah. you know he he was quite out of control well, even without the the, I, the death. I remember him talking talking about um his career and how he, he regrets not you know pulling his head in a bit and like two weeks. This is what I'm talking about the the rugby league culture at the time. It seems insane to me that the senior figures at the club couldn't have somehow said, "Why don't you go away for a while? Your your head's not in this." you're not in a fit state to be playing rugby league or thinking about rugby league. Instead, they, you know, he'd miss training and he'd, you know, get in trouble for it. They'd set up a meeting. He'd miss the meeting. Well, I mean, let's, for two weeks after the death of your best friend, I mean, where's the, where's the uh, compassion on that? But, but also, maybe this uh, I'm going to go around and get vengeance talk got back to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so obviously there was already some tension there. But you, you mentioned the lack of compassion. So MG attended a meeting finally with Don Feltus, the, the Panthers boss, where it was pretty likely that he was going to get the sack, whatever happened. But Feltus allowed Gaia to kind of unload and say he wanted out. And then, and this is from uh, Phil Gould's book, so which came out in 95, I think. So I don't know, take it as you want. Maybe it's slanted one way, but it was saying that, so Feltus, when Gaia said he wanted out, Feltus brought out Gaia's contract and invited him to tear it up, oh, which Gaia did, therefore resigning, not getting sacked, and costing himself like thousands and thousands of dollars in the process. And Gould's book, which was written by Ray Chesterton, uh, said, friends say Feltus still has the eight pieces of the contract. Like, I mean, if that's true, how callous and like heartless is that? I've got to say, I think um, there must be much more to the Gaia story than we know about because... Who's going to do that to someone who's a star player who lost their best friend yeah. two weeks after unless it is a massive nightmare? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that, that's funny because in, in all of Gaia's recollections of, of the time, he is quite contrite, you know, and, uh, you know, is very introspective about where he was at mentally. So there doesn't seem to be any malice coming from Gaia about it. Let's put it on record that we're both massive Mark Gaia fans. Absolutely, yeah. And talk about a, a inverse Gus trajectory in personality. Like he's become a you know, a gentleman and a, a beloved figure. Yeah. I believe. So he leaves the Panthers, ends up at Balmain, which almost from the start was, was a terrible fit, mainly for those same reasons. He wasn't he wasn't right to be playing rugby league. He needed a, a bigger break and he probably needed to get out of Sydney when he did re-sign because he, he said at the time he'd, you know, drive from Penrith to Balmain and, you know, drive past Penrith Stadium and just think, what am I doing? Why, why am I going to this club? Uh, the relationship between him and Gould deteriorated further when he didn't make the 92 squad and was he was picked for the city team and ended up being sacked from it for being late to a training session. That's not the... Uh classic line from Gould with the altercation of the dressing room, is it? Yeah. When he, um, they, they get face-to-face and then the guy threatens to smash him and he goes, well, don't let fear hold you back. <laughs> yeah, that was that one. That says to me that Phil Gould is not a pussy. Yeah. 
Because if that guy's standing in front of you in that era, God Almighty, God help you. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that you know further eroded the already terrible relationship between the two of them at the time. Guy, you know, soldiers on through '93, but by early '94, it, it was clear that Balmain wasn't working out. Um, Wayne Pierce was there at coach at the time and was doing his best to to get Guy into counselling and you know make this relationship work. And and at the time in early '94, Guy spoke positively about it. Uh, I'll, I'll read this. I just want to calm down now and not be so volatile, so snappy. I've noticed myself. I'm driving the car and I want to punch out the guy in the car next to me. It's just not on. <laughs> You can't go around thinking like that all the time. Obviously, something's troubling me outside of football and my family. It might be that I have a problem deep-rooted inside me. A counsellor a counselor might be able to bring it out of me. Until I speak to one, I might never find out. So, This is a good example of just humanity where you know, I'm a former criminal lawyer, so you, you meet a lot of troubled kids and like the anger inside people, particularly young people, they can make a wrong turn and get chucked in jail or mm. might go out through his career away, blah, blah, blah. But then you see Gaia, he's an adult now and he's a he's a kind, yeah. happy man and yeah. he's grown as a person. And, mm. you know, there's so many kids like this at that age can go the other way. Yeah. He's just lucky. Yeah, very very lucky. And, you know, obviously he's, he's well aware of that with the way he speaks now. So he tried to make it work in Balmain, but I think those, you know, mental struggles, he, he wasn't over to, able to overcome them at Balmain. In the meantime, he'd already signed at the Reds for 95 but he was out at Balmain. So, it, it you know, what he was going to do with 1994, well, well, that was all up in the air. So he... What he did do with it blew my head off. <laughs> we'll get to that. But before we end up in U minor, <laughs> um, let, let's talk about that red steel because when, when everything was hitting the fan at Balmain, suddenly the Reds' marquee signing was looking like a, a complete train wreck. They, you know, openly soured on the deal in the press, if not in in the actual, you know, still get getting him to come across. And at the same time, Mark Guyer was suddenly having thoughts about whether he wanted to be there. <laughs> it should be called the gymnastics uh, expansion, all the backflips. But think about this: so they lured Mark Guyer, they got Brad McKay. Like I think they did so well with their signings. Jimmy Grant. Yeah. So. Yeah, they did well with both youth and experience. Like getting Matthew Rodwell, great signing. Yeah, you know Rodney Howe, like that astute buy, a young player, uh, and obviously Brad McKay and Mark Guy with it with the two big ten pole signings. Um, I wanted to talk about Brad McKay for a moment, just to show you like how far removed from today, nineteen ninety four, really was. <laughs> when he was talking about the, the decision to sign there, he was you know he went over to Perth basically just you know as a out of curiosity, not thinking that he ever would actually sign. Uh, and one of those reasons was the flight. Um, and, and Brad McKay said, I immediately thought how awful it would be to fly all that way every two weeks. I have trouble sitting still for 15 minutes at home. The flight really surprised me. Not long after we took off, they showed a movie. Joanne and I love going to the movies, and before I knew it, I felt really comfortable. The movie finished, and it's two and a half hours into the flight, and I'm feeling really relaxed. Then they showed a couple of episodes of Cheers, and when we arrived, I felt really fresh. <laughs> um, it was a small world back yeah. then, wasn't it? <laughs> but he did go over, so did uh, Mark Geyer. They actually, in 1992, when they were still the Perth Pumas, 
Uh, they w- were close to announcing Peter Sterling as their inaugural coach. Um, that's amazing. Mm. That's the age-old rugby league trope discussed in the Brisbane Broncos uh, expansion history corner of naming uh, bids early, yeah. pre-license. <laughs> I think the Reds is better. Yeah, I think the Reds really suits. It's such a shame that they had to go because, A, they did well in their first year, good mm. crowds, etc. But what a fortress that would be yeah. when these... These rugby league teams have got to fly five hours each way to get in there. Yeah. And like it would really upset their apple cart. I mean, watch all the episodes of Cheers you want. <laughs> like, after a while, that's gonna... <laughs> uh, but so so yeah. So in all the toing and froing over whether MG was going to end up in Perth, whether they still wanted him, they must have been worried with good reason. Yeah, but they there was actually a very real chance of his return to the Panthers. Uh, and that all, you know, all came of of a meeting with Gus at a pub where they sat down and, and worked everything out and, and managed to settle all their differences. And this was actually really touching from from Gus, so I'll just read this. Sometime later, when Mark was cut from Balmain, I worked very hard to get him back to Penrith. He and I and our manager Wayne Beavis went to lunch at one stage, and it was one of the funniest afternoons I've ever had. Mark and I swapped stories and recollections of all the lies and excuses he had used on me to get out of training sessions. Mark is a difficult person for people to understand. I've formed the opinion that Mark enjoys living the life of a footballer, but he does but he does not want to be one. He's a great bloke. It's a good good comment. So they they sorted out their differences, as I said, almost paving the way for a return to Panthers. The Panthers board were, were keen to get him back. Obviously he was still at his best, you know, a, a devastating forward for the opposition to deal with. Interesting sliding doors moment here to, to uh quote a rugby league trope, but uh <laughs> If he doesn't go to Perth, uh, where's Matt Guy's career? Yeah, yeah, very interesting because Matt went on a whim over to Perth with Mark. It's uh, hard to know if they would have loved him at Penrith. You yeah. Know? So, so in the end, they couldn't get the deal done because they said, we'll have you back, but it's up to you to get out, out of your Reds deal. We're not going to sign you for this year just so you can be fresh for the Reds in 95. So get out of your Reds deal and then you can come play with us. Uh, and it it just couldn't be worked out. How could it not be worked out? This is rugby league. <laughs> just a hint of homesickness yeah. could have could have got him out of it. I kind of think that it was a subconscious thing where he knew that he still had to go. Yeah, you know? I, no, I'm so glad he went. Yeah, because it, um, it seems to have transformed him. Mm. But in the meantime, what was he going to do in '94? Again, a few clubs were were interested in signing him, but balked at the prospect of signing him for that year. But interestingly enough, the Raiders. Expressed interest, knowing that it would only be for the year. I'm glad we didn't get him then. But we're, leading, how stacked would this side yeah. have been? Christ. But leading to calls of of double standards because they sacked Sean Hoppy because he'd signed with the Warriors for '95. Yeah, so, I, I remember thinking that was madness, and then we got yeah. Nagus and then yeah. Drucker. <laughs> so his his pathway to a first grade return was out of action, but he still had a kangaroo tour to think about, and so that. The decision to go to the bush was directly a result of trying to force his way into New South Wales and potentially Australia from the bush. And that was at, at the behest of David Barnhill, boss of the, the Country Rugby League, who suggested you'd you know, you'd play country first, you've got a, a chance to get back on the rep scene. That's insane in ninety four. Mm. So it didn't happen obviously, but it, so he went to U Minor, uh, chiefly because his his grandfather was living there and he thought it would be a good Chance to to spend some quality time with him. I um, 
I've been for Newcastle. I couldn't believe it. I said, he's playing for you, minor. It's like that's down the road. Like, they're they're like, they're locally. <laughs> <laughs> so the minor bunnies obviously it caused a, a huge stir in the community. You had you know choppers overhead, you know, <laughs> What's, covering the return of MJ. What is funny about that is in Newcastle West, uh, Newcastle at the Glamour Club with the big pokies den and whatever. Mm. So, so it was like oh, West had bought another player. Yeah. You minor's like the Glamour Club of the yeah. Central Coast League. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the, each week, the player of the match in, in the U minor team won the golden chop. Uh, <laughs> and, and MG was very excited about that prospect. He get, said, forget the Rothmans medal. I want a golden chop. <laughs> but uh, very interestingly, but this, this is the last uh, thing I've got to say about U minor. In, in that Central Coast comp, playing for Arimba was a uh, budding Daily Telegraph journalist, Paul Kent. Amazing. Uh, and so he was already writing for the Telegraph at that point, And... One of his colleagues had had written a not so flattering piece about Mark Geyer. So when Mark Geyer saw Paul Kent lining up opposite him, th- this was Geyer's quote: "I thought God was listening to me." As Paul Kent recounts it, Geyer looked up and around. He saw me and pointed at me. "You're dead," he said. My teammates turned and smiled. They said, "I'd hate to be you." You might have charged down a kick. I chased the loose ball, and Geyer was the only player close. I got there a fra- fraction of a second before Geyer's elbow got to the back of my right ear. A brawl erupted, the crowd was delighted, and after a time we made our way to the sin bin. Separately, thank God, but it was telling. Eventually I was replaced because I experienced blind spots. The game ended and Gaia, apparently with all forgiven, told a teammate to say day. I was in the dressing room, vomiting only every three minutes or so, but he'd got square and ever since we've got on well. <laughs> Gee up. <laughs> now we'll go back to 1992 and, and Brandy. Mark Iyer spoke of the differences in their personalities, being that, you know, Randy kind of bottled up his emotions where Gaia, you know, wore it all on his sleeve, which, which kind of uh, speaks of the way they both handled their eventual Panthers' departure. So, you know, Brandy was a kind of a simmering, you know, gradually disintegrating relationship, Gaia adopting a scorched earth policy. Can I just say, like, we are both gigantic Brandy fans, um, both on the field and um, his analysis on yeah. TV, he still looks like a broken man. Like yeah. it, it's like it's yeah. It, this is a irreversible change in a guy's personality losing a brother. Like. Yeah, and and he said that you know anytime he has spoken about it that it's it's not something you get over. You know, no. And and I think yeah, mentioning our love of Brandy, I think that's one of the reasons that it hit me so hard. Like Brandy was my absolute idol at that point. Like he was my number one guy. But so he he took time away. He came back late in 92 when he really shouldn't have. He said that, you know, football was the last thing on his mind. Not really, you know, operating with any mental capacity, but, you know, he thought it was somehow the right thing to do to come back to the field. Uh, and in 93... you got to admire that. That's, yeah. That's a yeah. team guy. Mm-hmm. But then in 93, he came back, but there was there was no desire. His form really suffered because of it which was understandable you got to remember this in 1992 he ricky stewart was out injured early in the year brandy was like the absolute you know certainty to start at halfback for new south wales that year in the end he he got injured as well and stewart got back for games two and three but like brandy was like in in the top tier yeah it's always top tier yeah from early on and then you know that 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 fell away on the field and off the field that desire, that lack of desire, manifested himself itself into a you know fairly poor attitude. He, you know, missed training sessions, kind of turn up when he wanted, 
and not really put in, which led to disharmony within the team. Some of whom were, were like, you booted Guy after two weeks, but, you know, we've got this going on. Different case. It absolutely, we can say that, but if you're within that team, yeah, you know, it's... It's just untenable from every angle. It's yeah. like, you can't say to the guy, you lost your brother, we want you to try. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you can't say to the team, teammates, we want you to try and follow the rules, but this guy doesn't have to. It's like, it's literally untenable. It, it, yeah, it is. Um, and and there's, there's no right or wrong way to deal with grief and you have to understand that people are going to handle things in a different way. But, you know, Gould's, Gould's comment was, was quite telling that I always felt he could have given more, that he could have gotten over the tragedy earlier, which sounds harsh. You know, it sounds really harsh and I don't think it was meant that way by Gould. But there is something to it that... You know, that's one of the most... Uh, that makes you sit back and, whoa, because yeah. like... In the end of the day, they want to win football games, and it's like, okay, well, this is the worst tragedy in the history of the game, but we got to win. Yeah, yeah, and, and that and that's the that's the difficult position that Phil Gould was placed in. That suddenly he's got this team that's falling apart around him, and there's nothing he can do about it. Like at one point in '93, he wanted to drop Brandy. Like he'd form, he'd form had had fallen to the point that he was an actual liability in the team. But when he when he said to Don Feltus, "I'm dropping Brandy this week," Feltus said, "You can't." You just can't do it. Yeah. You know, and that was the position Gould was in, you know, and then it got to the point where they started recruiting halfbacks for 94. Gould was saying to Brandy, I, I think you should go have a year in England, do something, you know. So they went hard after Jason Taylor, missed out on him. Luckily for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> missed out on, on him, but got Gary Freeman in for 94. Yeah. And. 94 was, was even worse because Freeman and Alexander basically wouldn't pass to the other one. The, you know, the team harmony was falling apart. You think about that. So Gary Freeman and Trevor Gilmeister both come in for the 94 season. You think that would have been great signings for any club? But how difficult would it be for those guys as outsiders to arrive oh. in this kind of environment? You know, can you imagine that? But also this, this whole thing of, um, uh, Brandy can play fullback. It's like the guy is a half. Yeah. Right. He could, he's a great athlete, could easily play fullback, but he's not a fullback. Mm. So yeah, we'll get Freeman, we'll put him at fullback. Yeah. Even at the Warriors, they'll sign him as a fullback. Yeah. yeah it's like, yeah. he's not a fullback. <laughs> <laughs> you, you. I think the thing is, he, he was an athlete, you know, he was, yeah, big, but, you know, I agree, like absolute halfback, but um, he's, he's one of the premier halfbacks of all time, but yeah. we'll put him at fullback. <laughs> but so when Gary Freeman came in, this was his quote of the situation. Gee, mate, I really don't... And this was in Phil Gould's book. So, you know, this is Gary Freeman talking in 95 or so. Gee, mate, I really don't want to talk about it. I know they had some problems when I was there, but I just wanted to stay out of it. That's the God's honest truth. I'd say to Gus, what's happening? He'd tell me and I'd say, whatever. <laughs> Cheers, Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in any other situation, getting like Gary Freeman and Trevor Gilmeister, who's still like, was Trevor Gilmeister then in 94. Like, yeah, Wayne, Wayne Bennett, like, you know, was devastated to have to lose him. And, you know, the Broncos kind of went went downhill in 94 partly because of that loss. Did anyone love an enforcer more than Wayne Bennett? Maybe <laughs> Stiggy. <laughs> no, it leads me to a story my, my dad told me yesterday that he had a HR role at uh, Carlton Breweries in the late 90s <laughs> and they were going through a series of layoffs that, that he was involved in. So uh, the... Everyone at work was calling him Trevor Gilmeister. <laughs> the axe. <laughs> so, 1994, 
from early on in the season, it was announced that that Brandy had signed with the Warriors. But for months afterwards, he was still in interviews wrestling with the idea of like, could I leave Penrith? And you know, coming down on the side of like, I just want to stay here. I, I can't do it. I, you know, the, here's where I need to be. Got two things to comment on this. Watching the this, this season, I just I just remember them. Geez, Penrith are bad this year. Didn't really think. Oh, that's right. The uh, guy died last year. Yeah. and they're in turmoil. It didn't, yeah. didn't even cross my mind as a kid. I was just like, oh, just playing playing awful this year. Um, and you look you're looking at it deeper as an adult. It's like Jesus Christ. But this poor guy. Not only has he lost his brother and best friend, he would have been a one club player. Yeah, he would have been a, a legend. You know. Mm. Like his career was derailed by this Ben Super League. He had two of them. Yeah, no good. And it this speaks of of where everyone was at at the time when when he announced that he was signing to the Warriors and he was leaving. That Penrith, like Gould's feeling, was one of relief. You know, imagine that you're like absolute best player of all time, like leaves and you, all you feel is relief. You know, say what you want about Gould, and we will <laughs> and do, but. He has got compassion for his yeah. friends, yeah. and I think I think he's got more compassion for his friends than he has for football. To mm-hmm. be honest, I I won't sign off eight different friends <laughs> friends in a game, but I think that's a real mark of the man to feel relief there. Yeah, it's for Brandy's sake, well, and the club, I suppose. But. And and almost instantly, the club, I, I mentioned that sense of relief, and they knew that this is what they needed to get their all time legend back in the fold. So at that point, they didn't think about him coming back as a player, which is what eventually happened. But they, they offered him the position of training director. So he signed for two years with the Warriors and they said, come back in 97 and, and we'll, we'll put you in as training director. So already they knew that, you know, this was a temporary blip. Sorry, the guy that won't show up to training is going to be directing training, is that? Well, I, I guess that's the thing. They, they felt that the, the two years would help him to, you know, a change of scenery would help him get his mind right. Which is what happened. I mean, he comes back to the Panthers in 97, plays for New South Wales that year. Super League. <laughs> <laughs> it still happened. Um, but you know what? I remember being so excited about the Warriors, right? This is amazing. And they had Brandy. It was like, what a marquee signing. Yeah. Because like, as a kid, you don't realize his mind's gone to mush. Mm. Um, you just think, oh man, Brandy, he's going to like make them win. You know, I was a big Phil Blake guy and a big Brandy guy. It's like, they yeah. got both of them. Yeah. Um, but that Warriors squad... Everyone was talking about it as it was going to be an instant rival to the Broncos. Yeah. It was like, you, you got the New Zealand team plus Brandy, you know? Exactly exactly the uh, talk I heard, and no one realized that they were only a 58-minute team <laughs> for 25 years. I mean, yeah, so you, you look at that first team, you know, so, yeah, Brandy, Dean Bell, Dennis Betts. Um, All right, let's stop there. Yeah. Dean Bell and Dennis Betts lauded as these two giants of the English game. No good. Yeah. John Cohen, New Zealand rugby legend. No good. <laughs> so, like, they wasted a lot of signings on uh, yeah, names. Yeah. Uh, that was their Gary Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Times three. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess the idea was that it would legitimize them to a New Zealand public that was, you know, rabid rugby union fans. Yeah. But, uh, like, with the young blokes, they, they got it right, you know. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Kearney was already basically established from West, but, you know, Having Stacey Jones there, you know, Joe Vungana. Um, I think Tierra Party come back. He was in Newcastle. Yeah, yep, you're right. Yeah, he was in that first squad. And, and you know, getting Sean Hoppy at the top of his game as well. I thought that was a great marquee yeah. signing. Yeah. 
Uh, Killer Squad. Killer Squad. Uh, they got the name right, uh, and that that was one that had been decided in 1992 as well. Dominion Brewery were the, the, <laughs> the, the sponsors of the team, so they, they put it out to the public. Um, <laughs> Which beer company decided the fate of this club? Well, I, I'm glad they had limited say because one of their proposed names was the Auckland Bitter Men. Oh, my bloody God. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the other names in the mix. So, yeah, the Warriors was there. That was the overwhelming crowd favourite, and I think... They, they got it right. Uh, the Volcanoes, the Pirates, the Bittermen, the Orcas, and the Hawks. Auckland Orcas. That's not too bad, actually. It's not too bad. And when you think about it, like, killer whales are a pretty sick animal and very and we like, underrepresented. In you know how it would have went? Um, who you guys got in the weekend? Oh, playing the Orcs. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be too bad. Yeah. It was the Free Willy era. You would have got some, some jokes yeah. out of that somehow. Okay, there'll be a few players for in their willies, mate. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I um, think Warriors was a winner. Yeah, and they, they had their logo basically from the start as well. It was logo always, was killer. Yeah, yeah. Didn't like those those that color scheme. I think they the black and gray like is definitely the the best colors for them. Rugby league jerseys, the, the initial ones, generally designed by like a year nine kid yeah. on their first attempt. Yeah. It's like mm. I don't know how they can get the colors and jerseys so yeah. wrong all the time. Anyway. Uh, but I, I remember so clearly that first game against the Broncos with the tiki torches on the side. Yeah, yeah. I just remember thinking, how cool is this? Yeah. It was magic. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Brandy did okay at the Warriors, came back to Panthers. Um, as I said, played Super League uh, Origin that year. There's, there's something really beautiful about the ending that, that he and Gaia both got. It was magnificent. The fact that they were both there in 99 at Penrith for Brandy's last home game. Um, Guy, you know, gave a stirring dressing room speech, which uh, I'll let Roy Simmons, uh, coach at the time, tell the story. There was nothing too intelligent in what he said, <laughs> but it was good stuff, <laughs> all raw emotion, and I think it had the desired effect. You want to talk about one of the game's characters, <laughs> yeah. Roy Simmons, legend. <laughs> Brandy finished the end of 99. Guy was squeezed out, um, you know, salary cap reasons the year after but you know took that all with good spirit and said he didn't want to let didn't want to hold the young blokes back i love when guys go out like that instead of saying i want to i want to hold the young blokes back for yeah. extra pay there <laughs> and i'll just um I'll, I'll just give the last word to to paul kent who, who i think summed it up really well emotionally he never quite made it to where he was physically not until the very end anyway by which time his physical abilities had begun to decline if the two had ever peaked together though there is little doubt guy would have been the forward of his era but he's still remembered for what he did in the short burst. Yeah, uh, he'll always be remembered as a, for greatness in a, in a in a flash. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you can't tell origin story without him. No, and you can't tell ninety one without him. Yeah, and and more, put football aside, like it's just so good to see him eventually find that emotional balance, and the fact that you know, obviously, Gould's departed from the Panthers now, and you know, we've we've had plenty to say about that in the past, but the fact that Brandy came back in the mix, you know, coaching the halves. Yeah. You know, Guyer and, and Gould, you know, best mates. I, I still love watching them on the Sunday roast together. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we had the, you had the column in Rugby League where when he was insulting everybody. I love that because in a, in a game of fence-sitting, he, he was one of the only guys having an opinion. Yeah. Infuriating people, mm. didn't care, and made his media career from it. Yeah. Loved it. But for all the turmoil and tragedy we've just discussed... I wouldn't say it's a happy ending, but it's but at least you can take out of that that everyone involved has has made their peace. I call it closure. Yeah. In some respects. 
Um, and, and speaking of which, that, that closes out this episode. Uh, I, I really hope you've enjoyed it because this was very difficult to put together, very difficult to talk about. And I, I hope, I hope we've done it, uh, with justice and respect. Uh, but, but thank you for listening. Um, please, please send us your thoughts about, about this or, or anything else you want to tell us about. And we'll be back with part two of the 1994 story next week. <laughs>